0: So the background to the story is found in the Old Testament. This is all happening about 600 years before Jesus was born. And the nation of Israel that God loves and has chosen and wants to bless to be a blessing to the nations, they've been disobedient to God. And so God has judged the nation and pulled Israel out of their homeland back to Babylon. And the king there is Nebuchadnezzar. And what Nebuchadnezzar tries to do with these exiles, these people who have been ripped from their homeland, is, is sort of, uh, remove God from the whole picture. And so we're going to see how he does that. And Ugo is going to come and do our reading.
1: So Daniel 3, 1-7. to King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flew to zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up.
0: Wonderful, thank you. Let me hold on to that. So a statue is built, it is 90 feet high and about 9 feet wide and it's shimmering gold, we don't know if it was solid gold but it was shimmering gold and it's a blatant act of removing God from the culture and replacing it with a man-made thing. That is secularism. Secularism is ejecting God from normal everyday life. It's like casting... God out. Just as Jesus cast out demons, secularism casts out God from our lives. It's replacing God with mankind and our achievements. And today we live in a secular society. So what is it exactly and what should we be wary of? Well, pastor and author John Tyson gives us three movements secularism makes for Christianity. Number one, It moves us from the centre to the fringe. So in the olden days, cities used to be built with the church at the centre, very symbolic of the church's influence in culture. But uh, some of you may know, just recently, as uh, His Majesty Charles III was proclaimed our king, MPs from all across parties had to pledge their allegiance before God. This year, several chose not to swear on the Bible, instead making a secular, solemn affirmation instead. That is faith being moved from the centre out to the fringe. The second movement is from public to private. So you separate stuff of God, your faith, from what is private and what is public. So it means that you struggle these days to take your faith into the workplace or let it impact your decision-making. So uh, former Downing Street spin Dr. Alistair Campbell famously announced, we don't do God, when he was working for the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair. And when Tony was asked about his faith, Alistair Campbell was very clear, we do not publicly talk about God. So privatised faith is tolerated as long as it doesn't impact public life. So any sort of spirituality and openness about that in the workplace is often seen as unprofessional and unacceptable. Does that make sense? Okay, and thirdly, it moves it from strange to being a threat. So the Christian faith, let's admit it, it is a little bit strange at times. And anyone coming to a church service is like, what is going on here? But secularism moves it from not just being a little bit strange, but any strong faith is seen as sometimes irrelevant, but more than that, it's sometimes seen as extreme or dangerous. So generally there's this underlying assumption that any sort of fundamentalist belief in the world is the cause of many of the world's problems. So privatised faith is tolerated as long as it doesn't impact life and then strange faith becomes a threat. So offering to pray for someone can sometimes be offensive or the cause of you losing your job. And the result of all... Just just help me out here. You guys are familiar. Does this all ring true for you? What life is like? Yeah. So all of that stuff happening means there is pressure and fear for the Christian. So out there we want to hide. We're fearful of causing offence or being attacked. And so most of us at work or at home tend to be on the back foot. We tend to retreat and anxiety increases. And only the most courageous amongst us would ever stick our head above the parapet and confront secular belief. And because of this, I think there's this underlying fear, underlying anxiety, underlying pressure that most of us live with. So the problem with secularism from a Christian perspective is that it not only causes us great pressure and fear, but fundamentally it doesn't work. Because we believe as Christians, if you're a Christian here, that secularism doesn't fulfill the longing of human hearts. Uh, One very clever writer called Neil Postman says this, got this quote on the screen. But in the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. Its story of our origins and of our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. So the question, how did it all begin? Science answers, probably by an accident. To the question, how will it all end, science answers, probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. So listen, I'm for the scientific, I'm for the rational, but as a way of living that ejects God from who we are, detracts from the very reason we've been created, to know God in our hearts, we've been made for God. And not only that, but you can look at the impact secularism is making in society. We have high levels of hopelessness and depression and addiction and anxiety and trauma than ever before. We've been sold a way of living without God and it it has huge consequences. Secularism just isn't working. And our jobs, if you're a parent in the room, is to help our kids and young people understand what's really being sold to them. So it's not just a case of us as parents saying, well, this is good and this is bad, this is wrong, this is right, because kids tend to drift to the stuff you say is bad and wrong. They're curious, they want to know about stuff. We as Christian parents have got to show like, fundamentally why it doesn't work. We must help them see the emptiness of what culture is selling. So secularism is life without God. Why don't you just turn to your neighbour and say that. Secularism is life without God. Secularism is life without God. So back in Babylon, our three heroes are just to make a stand against it. So Ugo, do you want to come back up and read from verse 13?
1: Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego so these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them is it true Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold i have set up now when they hear the sound of the horn flute zither lyre, harp pipe and all kinds of music if you are ready to fall down and worship the image i made very good but if you do not worship it you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your God's, Or worship the image of gold you have set up.
0: Wonderful, thank you.
1: Nebuchadnezzar
0: threatens them with death if they don't give up on God. And he actually mocks the God of Israel. He says, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand in verse 15? He sees them as helpless and without a choice, but they stubbornly refuse to compromise. So our question this morning is how? Well, these three seem to put their confidence not in personal deliverance, but in the deliverance of a nation. They say, verse 16, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods. So they put their trust in God and his purposes for the nation of Israel. They're not expecting personal safety, rather they're trusting that God, in the big picture, in his sovereign rule, will rescue the nation from exile. They just know they're this really small bit of God's big plan. And so for these three, you can only wonder sort of the hundreds of small decisions they have made during their lives that have enabled them to choose wisely in the moment. They may get burned up by the fire, but staying true to God is what's important. Acting with integrity um, at whatever cost, trusting God's sovereign purposes is more important to them. It's better to be with God and be dead than to live without him. That's how radical their decision is. And so we can really relate to that. Living for Jesus in our culture is costly because the lie that secularism offers is to do with improving your well-being, improving your standard of living, improving your life without Jesus as king. So if you like, secularism is selling you a kingdom without an actual king. Secularism promises fulfilment and advance and growth and peace and reconciliation and comfort, which are all things that we see in God's kingdom, but without anyone actually having to worship Jesus. No one wants to bow down to anyone except themselves. But the problem is that our Western culture doesn't seem to grasp that a kingdom without a king isn't a great kingdom remotely capable of the love and innovation and unity and prosperity that we crave. We cannot have the benefits without the benefactor who is Jesus. We will only find our lives, ironically, when we submit our lives to Jesus and his rule and reign. That's the only way we get true life in this world is when we bow down to the true king, which is Jesus. Amen? So the question we've got to ask ourselves in the battle against secularism is, is Jesus king? So often when I, if I close, why don't we do this together, just close your eyes. Just trust me for a moment. Close your eyes and imagine a really big circle. And inside the circle is everything about your life. So you're in the circle, your family, your friends, uh, your house, where you live, your job. Everything that's important to you is in that circle. Now in the middle of this circle is a throne. The question we must, must ask ourselves is, who is on the throne of my life? And I know the Christian answer is Jesus. But really? Is he there? Or are you sat on that throne? Or are your kids sat on that throne? Or is your money sat on that throne? You can open your eyes again, but seriously, do you submit your way of life to him? Jesus boldly says in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life to the full when he is in charge. Live in the Jesus way is the most life-giving life. And like the three facing the furnace, it requires faith to believe beyond what we see in front of us and embrace this truth. And it often means sacrifice and risk. That It could mean us being marginalised for having Jesus as king. And so I wonder where you need to work your faith muscle right now. Like, where are you tempted to not have Jesus king? Which bits of your life does it feel like other things seem to rule and reign rather than what... Perhaps you pray as a last resort, resorts, or perhaps there's areas of your life where you just, just... God just feels really absent. Do you make decisions, big decisions, without ever asking Jesus or your friends. You know, I spoke to a younger couple uh, about a month or so ago. Uh, they both work here in Leeds. Uh, they've just got married, and they're thinking of their future. And when we did their um, marriage preparation, we said, what, what do the next couple of years look like? And they said, like, very honestly, they said, well, we're here in Leeds now, but we'd like to do the London life so we want to move down to London, have a couple of years before kids, just enjoying London and then perhaps we'll move somewhere else to buy a house. And we said to them you know, that's that, you know, that's fair enough and we understand that that's the pull of London but what does Jesus want for your life? Like the community of friends that you have in the church, what, what do they want, you know, in terms of how are you going to do friendship with them and what, what, what about your role here in the church family? Is that something you just sort of dismiss in order to pursue this better life? And listen, the reality is um, we get the privilege of sending people outside, you know, from Leeds to other places, and that's what we want to do, if it's what Jesus wants for them. But to even have a track for life without even asking Jesus what he wants, for me, is craziness, because you will find, and Jesus as king is the only way we find true So your big decisions, are they things you do on your own or is Jesus involved? So we need to stand our ground. Let's see what happens to our three as they do that. Ugo, do you want to come up again?
1: 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace, heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers, in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there were three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the air of their heads singed. Their ropes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way.
0: Wonderful. To give Hugo a round of applause? Great reading there. So in the middle of the fire is a fourth person and most Bible commentators would say that this is a theophany. So this is where Jesus of the New Testament makes an appearance in the Old Testament. Jesus is with them. Jesus is in the fire. Jesus is at the centre. Jesus is protecting and comforting and responding to their faith. The only things that burns is the ropes that bind them. And the prophet Isaiah describes what hap- what's happening. Isaiah 43, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, you will, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Listen, what we've said is secularism is replacing God at the centre of all things with man. Secular humanism is a faith-based system. It's a religion that believes that the material world is all that exists and you can have a kingdom without the king. They do not believe in a supernatural God. And so the answer to living in a culture that is secularist is a living community that acts and believes and practices the presence of God at its centre. God's ultimate answer to secularism is to send Jesus into the fire. You see, if mankind gets rid of God, the Christian story is that God comes to us through sending Jesus, his son, to give his life in love for mankind, to defeat mankind's greatest enemies, sin, death and the grave, and then to rise victoriously, proving that God both can and will save us physically and spiritually. So we believe Jesus is the most compelling person to have ever lived. And I'm saying to you, beware, secularism is not our friend. The key to living in secular society as a Christian is to expect Jesus to show up. But what practices can keep Jesus at the centre of your furnace? Well, let me give you one as we close things out. I want to encourage you to practice the presence of God. That phrase, practicing the presence of God, comes from a little book written by Brother Lawrence many years ago. And for me, that, that, whole, that term, practising the presence of God, is putting into practice wherever possible a conscious effort to be thankful and aware of God's presence, whatever I am doing. It involves meditating on God's word. It involves remembering to give thanks and praise. It even includes our lament and our grief and those tough moments where we don't understand what God's doing. It's turning secular moments into holy moments just by turning our mind to Jesus and it smashes the divide that the world wants to give us between secularism and spiritual. It's letting the spiritual capture our secular moments. So for me, um, I read that little book about 25 years ago and it's a habit that I've been trying to perfect. So my prayer life has always been at set times. So usually first thing in the morning, I get up, spend time with the Lord, read the Bible, pray a bit. And so practising the presence of God is extending that time with God throughout. You know, theologically, we believe that God is present everywhere. Like we can never escape God's presence. And we can... um, Uh, we can always trust that he's around. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. Nowhere. If you go up to the heavens or you stay in your bed, if you go to faraway lands, even in your mother's womb, God is there. God is looking for his people to look to him. Journalist, social activist um, uh, Dorothy Day puts it like this. Christ is always with us, always asking for room in our hearts. But I want to encourage you this week to practice the presence of God. Really practically, um, it might be that you, either on your watch or on your phone, you have an hourly beep. And it might be that beep is there to help turn your mind to God. It might be that you just want to write out a couple of scriptures that go on the mirrors in your house. And so if you're at home, you always tend to look at yourself as you walk past a mirror, some more than others, and to put some verses there will help just draw your mind back to God. I know some people that carry stones in their pockets, and so every time they put their hand in their pocket, then they're reminded that Jesus is their rock, or whatever it is that they're just trying to focus on. For me, it's um, trying to do everyday things that I do every day, like washing up or doing the dishwasher or whatever it is and, and using those moments where I'm actively doing something that I repeat often during the week and saying this is my moment just to turn my mind towards God. Another thing I try and do is whenever I go outside so when I open my front door and step out I try and cultivate a thankful heart so whatever I see as I step out the door Whether it's the sky or the weather, or whether it's the trees and the grass, or whether it's the car, or whatever I see, I just try and turn that into praise, into thanksgiving, and always try and start my day as I'm venturing out into the world. I start with thanksgiving because it just sets my mind on things above. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Colossians three: Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. He is on the throne. Secularism's lie is that true life is found in the world, in material things, not in God. It whispers to us constantly, and it's so easy to give in. It's so easy to believe the lie and just fall asleep, spiritually speaking you give up on your time to God, you fail to read your Bible, and you just don't practice the presence of God. But listen, I'm calling you this week to resist, actively resist the pull of salvation. Use life instead of death. Christ is with you in the furnace. Wake up and practice his presence. Amen? Amen.